don't feel so good. Hello and welcome to The Poison Cast, a podcast dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. My name is Scott Barnett. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate in cell and molecular pharmacology and physiology at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. If you started listening to this podcast in the hopes of eventually learning what the single most deadly poison on the entire planet is, your journey has ended, my friend. Botulinum toxin, by nearly every metric imaginable, is without a doubt the single most lethal molecule you will ever encounter. Just how poisonous? I normally like to save this part until later on in the show, but it's just too insane not to mention now. It is so toxic that a single gram of botulinum toxin, which is about the weight of a paperclip, can kill one million people. Imagine chopping a paperclip into a thousand pieces, then taking just one of those tiny pieces and chopping it into a thousand more pieces. One of those could kill you. It's so small that even with 20-20 vision, you would not be able to see the amount of botulinum toxin that can kill you. As a matter of fact, if you go to uh, our website when you finish listening to this episode, thepoisoncast.com, and you click on today's episode, I've made a short video In our lab, we have an extremely expensive, extremely accurate balance that can weigh things way, way smaller than even a a grain of salt. And I compare what a grain of salt and an equivalent amount of botulinum toxin could do to a group of human beings. So definitely check that out. Okay, so to this end, it might come as a surprise because it's so toxic that we willingly inject ourselves with the substance for medical purposes all the time. It's a very strange dichotomy that I hope to clear up on today's show. Okay, but I've gotten a bit ahead of myself, though. Let's back this train up and learn a bit more about what botulinum toxin is. Botulinum toxin is a protein made by a bacteria called Clostridium botulinum. It's an anaerobic gram-positive spore-forming rod commonly found in many plants, soils, and water. That's a lot of fancy words. It's not that fancy, believe it or not. Anaerobic just means it doesn't need to breathe oxygen, um, which makes sense if you're underneath the if you're underneath the soil. Low oxygen contents just makes sense for you here. Gram positive, as opposed to gram negative, just means that if you apply a certain dye to the surface of the bacteria, it will bind to it, and you'll be able to see it by looking under a, a microscope. Hence the positive and gram positive. Why would you possibly care about this or anyone for that matter? Well, the shorter answer is that gram-positive bacteria are easier to kill with antibiotics. So traditionally, this has been a nice and simple way for doctors who want to prescribe a, 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 a penicillin or something to someone without running a lot of tests. You can do a simple stain on it and know there. Matter of fact, there are lots of other gram-positive bacteria out there that are that are more similar than dissimilar to uh, to to uh, C. botulinum. Uh, staph, if you have a staph infection, gram-positive, a lot of pneumonias, anthrax, believe it or not, the tetanus, uh, the tetanus toxin, which is very, very similar to the botulinum toxin. So you can almost apply a lot of what you hear today to tetanus, just, just for your own personal edification, tuberculosis, leprosy, and on a lighter note, some forms of acne too. Gram, uh, gram-negative bacteria, on the other hand, they have this, uh, they have an extra layer of protection on, on the outside of the bacteria. It's kind of like a suit of armor and they're much harder to get rid of. Think of like E. coli or mini STDs. Hello, gonorrhea. Side note, if you can spell gonorrhea correctly without a Google search, my hat is off to you. I've probably written it down 50 times in my life, and I have never, not because I had it, uh, but I have never been able to spell it properly without a, without a right-click, <laughs> get rid of the squiggle, red squiggly line thing here. Okay, so 
This whole antibiotic thing doesn't help much, though, with Clostridium botulinum because even though it's gram-positive, and I've just got done telling you how easy these are to kill, it's not the bacteria that's doing the damage to you. It's the botulinum toxin that is excreted by the bacteria. And by the time you realize you have a bacterial infection, which can take days or even weeks, depending on how quickly it's growing, you, which you can easily treat with an antibiotic, it's probably too late for you because that, that, that uh, bacteria has pumped way too much of this toxin to you at that point. As a matter of fact, Speaking of its lethality, let's talk about biological weapons because this one's a pretty pretty interesting one. Anytime you have something this toxic, it's just too juicy a possibility for the powers that be not to consider using it to kill people. And well, in the past, that's exactly what's happened. Uh, I found this really cool consensus article that was written by a couple different MDs and um, they discussed different ways it can be aerolized and put into foodborne illnesses and in different ways it can... It can kill you, essentially. And as I'd mentioned, so a single gram of this crystalline toxin, evenly dispersed and inhaled, would kill a million people. Although, just to be clear, that's like a a perfect scenario. I mean, you would have to go around making sure each person got exactly one one millionth of a gram. But it could, in theory, do it. Terrorists have actually already attempted to use botulinum toxin as bioweapons. you might remember this in the early 90s aerosols were dispersed at multiple sites in downtown tokyo japan within the subways and uh, the tax failed apparently because they didn't uh, grow the bacteria very well uh, or it might have been sabotage there's a lot of theory behind it but uh, what what they did do in order to acquire the world's most deadly poison did they go to a drug dealer did they go to some rogue scientist working for north korea no they just culture the bacteria from some soil they found in northern Japan. So, like it or not, the source material for this is readily available and very easy to find. But these guys were amateurs compared to what governments have done with botulinum toxins. So, the head of the Japanese Biological Warfare Group, which is called Unit 731, which would probably make the name of a very cool movie or comic book or something. And I'm not picking on Japan. These are just unfortunately, what's happened, what's happened in the past. They admitted uh, to feeding cultures of botulinum to prisoners with lethal effect during the country's occupation of Manchuria, which is part of northern China, which began way back in the 1930s. So um, maybe this was a rogue leader, who knows, but uh, whole governments have admitted using it as well. The U.S. government first produced botulinum toxin during World War II. We never really tested it out on the Germans, but uh, we were afraid that they were going to drop bombs on us that had botulinum toxins. So we actually created a whole bunch of vaccines that we were going to give to the troops, although we never did. Uh, and um, and so we were toying with it as far back as, as World War II. Now, in 1972, the Biological and Toxin weapons convention prohibited offensive research for producing really any biological weapon to include botulinum toxin but botulinum toxin is just so darn tootin' good at killing people and at a comparative bargain in price compared to other weapons like nuclear weapons that the temptation was too much for a lot of countries in particular iraq and the soviet union who subsequently produced a whole bunch of it how much is a whole bunch After the 1991 Persian Gulf War, that's the first time we went into Iraq, the Iraqi government admitted to the United Nations inspection team to have produced 19,000 liters of concentrated botulinum toxin. Er, record, Record scratch sound. If you're kind of tuning out right now, this is the time to lock back in. Let's pause for a moment, take a breath, and think about what that really means. If you recall, 
One gram, one gram of botulinum toxin can kill one million people. 19,000 liters is about the weight of six Cadillac Escalades. If we want to convert that into gram, that's roughly 18.6 million grams, or enough to kill, drumroll please, 18 billion people, or two and a half times the entire human race. But who's counting at that point, right? To be safe, we could probably say that we could kill every organism on the planet that has muscles controlled by the brain, because that's how botulinum toxin works, which we'll get to in a minute here. So here's the fun part. These 19,000 liters of concentrated toxin are not fully accounted for, and nobody knows where they are. Good times. The good news is that because it's a protein, uh, and it's not a super long shelf with really good shelf life and all that, it most of it's probably not very effective these days. But it's good to know that there was that much unaccounted for out there. So let's say you are unfortunate enough to get exposed to botulinum toxin. Okay, how's it going to get in you? There are four different ways it can get into your body, and most of these will make sense to you. Uh, One is through like a wound. If you cut yourself and you're working in dirt, let's say you're a farmer, uh, botulinum toxin can easily get into it. Think tetanus too. If you step on a a rusted nail that has the tetanus toxin on it, same idea. It's going to get into your wound and it's going to proliferate. Good news is is that if you realize this and you're around this type of um, bacteria, penicillin takes care of it. No harm, no foul. Babies, you can eat it is another way. Babies are, you may have heard that babies can't have honey. Uh, You shouldn't give an infant honey. This is because botulinum toxin from the bees going around to the flowers and the pollen and whatnot, it naturally uh, will will occur in the honey and it's not something we get rid of. It's in very, very, very small amounts. But if you think about how much smaller a baby is than a full-grown adult, you can understand why they would be concerned. There are fewer than 100 cases per year of babies being, uh, receiving botulism from, 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 uh, from honey, so it's not that big of a deal. By far, in a way, the most likely way you're going to get it is by eating it, and not just eating like a bad tomato. It's from canning. You've probably heard that if you improperly can something, it can be poisonous. This is from botulinum toxin. Botulinum uh, toxin can survive two hours at 100 degrees Celsius, which is boiling. So depending on your altitude, if you live in a high altitude, you might not be able to boil long enough or at a high enough temperature period to completely completely remove all the botulism. So that's a problem here. You have to raise the temperature to 120 degrees to Celsius. The other thing you can do is low pH. That's why you always want to use acidic foods when you, you you can can a tomato and you're probably all right because the pH is really low and this will affect the botulinum toxin. The last way you can do it is you can inhale the spores. I said it's a spore-forming bacteria. It can be floating around in the air, but unless, again, you work in soil that is contaminated with this, not so much a big concern of you here. But regardless of how it gets into your body, it's not the bacteria itself, as I said before, that you're going to need to be really concerned about. It's what it excretes, which, again, is the botulinum toxin. Not botulism, botulinum toxin. So how does it work? You know, I'd mentioned before that botulinum toxin is as much a medicine as it is a killer of people. To better understand that, let's first look at what the toxin is, how it gets into your body to cause damage, and then how it can be used for good. So as I'd said before, botulinum toxin is a protein made by a bacteria. The The toxin itself can act at four different sites quotes, heavy quotes within your body, the neuromuscular junction, the autonomic ganglia, the postganglionic parasympathetic nerve ending, and the postganglionic sympathetic nerve ending uh, that releases acetylcholine. Yes, I know, I know, I'm getting too sciencey, but there's a simpler way to say all that. And that is to say that if you have a muscle that is controlled by a neuron by your brain, it pretty much can act on it there. In fact, almost every muscle has this very long neuron 
sometimes over a meter in length, that goes from your brain through your spinal cord, then out to the muscle that it's going to influence, i.e. get to contract. Sometimes these muscles you have direct control over, like the muscles in your forehead, some foreshadowing here, uh, and, um, and sometimes they are not things you can control so easily, like your heart or to some extent your diaphragm, which controls your breathing, which most of the time you do without thinking about. Where the neuron connects um, to the muscle is called the neuromuscular junction. Now, I love science because most of the time the words are exactly what they say they are. The neuromuscular junction. This is where the neuron and the, and the muscle come together. Well, the very last step in the chain, when your brain sends a signal that it wants to contract a muscle, is for it to dump a bunch of a substance from the end of that neuron, which is called a neurotransmitter, um, and dump that onto whatever its target is. If it's in your brain, it's sending that neurotransmitter to another neuron so that that signal can propagate and a whole bunch of other neurons can fire. But if your brain wants a muscle to fire, it needs to release a very specific neurotransmitter called acetylcholine. And this happens right at that neuromuscular junction. The acetylcholine, acetylcholine excuse me, binds to the muscle and through a whole chain of events that go down after that, we don't have to worry about it, it causes the muscle to contract. So what is Botox doing in this process? Or excuse me, botulism toxin. We'll get to Botox in a minute. Botulinum toxin enters the neuron it travels all the way to the end of the neuron where the acetylcholine is stored in these little balls called vesicles and it binds to these acetylcholine bags, these vesicles, and prevents them from being excreted from the neuron. The result is complete paralysis of the muscle. The brain is desperately trying to send a signal for that muscle to contract by letting that acetylcholine go onto the muscle, but that very last piece of the puzzle, that release of the neurotransmitter acetylcholine onto the muscle is stopped. It's like putting your finger in the barrel of the gun. You can fire the bullet, the bullet can go down the barrel, but when the bullet hits your finger, assuming this is a cartoon, the barrel, the, the bullet's not gonna leave the gun here. In fact, if you are exposed to botulinum toxin, either by injecting it into your forehead to prevent wrinkles or by eating some bad vegetables that your aunt surely canned, it can take 24 to 72 hours for that toxin to do any real damage to actually hurt you. This is an insanely long time when it comes to poisons, toxins, or really any pharmaceutical that you put in your body. Most of the time they start interacting within seconds or even minutes at the most. This is because it has to find its way into the neuron it wants to affect. It has to w wiggle its way inside of it. Then it has to shimmy its way down the entire length of the neuron, which can be a couple feet long if you remember. And it's not breaking any land speed records while it does this. Then it has to bind itself to these bags of neurotransmitters, these vesicles. This takes a couple days. But once it does set up shop on your neuron, it's not going anywhere. This is why you need so little of it for it to be toxic. It is a very stable molecule, and because it's already inside your neuron, a lot of the mechanisms that normally deal with bad things in your body via your immune system, they can't get to the toxin because it's sheltered away in its little neuron home. The result is that it can remain in the neuron for months. Yes, months. This is almost unprecedented when it comes to when it comes to a, a any pharmaceutical or or I should say toxicological agent that's in your body. It's great if you want to get rid of frown lines and you don't want to go to the doctor every week to get a new injection, but it's really really bad if um, if the botulinum toxin in your neurons 
if it goes to a neuron that controls breathing or something else equally important. You know, the reason so little is needed to kill you, by the way, is because the Botox is confined, as I said before, in this small space in your neuron. It's like having um, a kiddie pool in your bedroom or something, right? Imagine the pool is a, is a vesicle and you throw a basketball around at random. It wouldn't take a lot of work for that basketball to find to land in a pool. It's going to bounce off a wall. It may take a couple tries and it's in there. It's because it's trapped at the end of this neuron. Most toxins work on the outside of your cells. So they have to disperse all the way out throughout your entire, you know, uh, through in your blood throughout your entire system. You have seven liters of blood. That's a lot of dilution for that poison to, to deal with here. And it would be like the equivalent if you put a kiddie pool in a basketball stadium and then you started throwing balls around randomly and trying to get it in the pool. You need a lot more balls and you need a lot more time in order to start putting the balls in the kiddie pool. So just to put this in contrast, we've talked about two other poisons that attack your neurons in the show, the black mamba poison and the pufferfish toxin, right? Which is tetrodotoxin. Both of these stop your neurons from firing by binding to the outside of the neuron. That's why you need some more of it than the, than, than, than this. Um, hemlock on a related note, it lets the neuron fire, but it stops the acetylcholine, which is supposed to get released and bind to, the, to, to that muscle to tell to fire. It actually stops it like a catcher with a catcher's mitt right before it hits the, that, that, that muscle, and it prevents it from binding to the muscle and causing it to fire here. So botulism toxin sits right in the middle of this chain of events. It does not interfere with the neuron firing. It's just fine. The neuron says, hey, I want my diaphragm to fire so uh, I, I can breathe says no problem it fires it sends a signal all the way down that neuron all the way down to to uh to where your um where your diaphragm is and then at that very last moment it stops the acetylcholine from being released and therefore your therefore you can't your diaphragm can't contract and you can't you can't um can't breathe so in all these cases the net result is the same your muscle doesn't contract and you die in the end, all, leads road, all roads lead to Rome, and Botox is just very efficient at what it does here. If you do get systemic poisoning, like from eating bad canned food, this is what you can expect. So it kind of a, this is the worst case scenario. It, typically, what you get is descending flaccid paralysis, which is a great term, with prominent bulbar palsies. I love science. Uh, that's a very fancy way of saying that you start uh, losing your ability to move at all. You're paralyzed from the top down, from your head down, and a bulbar a bulbar palsy is the impairment of head and neck function in general. You also get a uh, 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 plopia, which is double vision. You get dysphonia, which means you can't talk. Dysphagia means you can't swallow. Yada yada. All these things you'd expect from having paralysis of the head and neck. With severe cases, it looks like. You're really tired and you're just laying there and your eyes kind of like look like you're stoned. You kind of can barely open them. Um, but in reality, you're, you're wide awake and you're probably screaming in your head for help. But <laughs> nobody can help you because, uh, A, there's not a lot they can do to fix it. And on top of that, uh, uh, it's, it's well, it's just bad. I don't know what else to say. So why knowing all this, why would you possibly ever consider injecting yourself with the world's most toxic chemical? Well, as far back as 1981, it was actually found that botulinum toxin type A, there's a whole bunch of types. Uh, they're all variations on the same thing here, do, do essentially the same thing. Uh, a is very potent though. So they found that botulinum toxin A could be used for the management of strabismus, which is lazy eye. 
Uh, if you think about it, your eye is controlled by a muscle and it's there's an overcompensation. And by relaxing the muscle, you actually cause uh, a reduction in lazy eye. It has also been used to control excessive sweating because the glands that emit the sweater are controlled by muscles, as well as the treatment of, of other various ophthalmic spastic disorders, facial dystonias, and of course, our very favorite, which we're going to talk about next, periocular wrinkles, which of course, you know as smile wrinkles and and forehead wrinkles and all that fun stuff there. Periocular just means around the eye. So I'm referring to Botox, of course, right? The FDA approved Botox way back in 1989. So we're looking at, what is that, 99, 26 years? Yeah, Jesus, it's been a long time. And it was originally approved as an orphan drug for the treatment of this lazy eye, the stress bismuth, um, and hemifacial spasms here. Uh, orphan drugs are very interesting from a pharma- pharmacological standpoint. We won't go into now, but I'm going to be... Um, a pharmacologist, so I like this sort of stuff. But an orphan disease is something that doesn't make a lot of money for the pharmaceutical company, so they just choose not to research it. They are businesses after all. I'm not placing any judgment on that per se, but uh, they're called orphans because nobody wants to study them. Well, they found this drug. It was working for these very limited, you know, diseases, the, the lazy eye and the spasms and whatnot, and then nobody else knew what to do with it. But then one enterprising young doctor or company, I don't know exactly who discovered it, they found out that you can charge rich people a lot of money that who want to willingly paralyze their face so that they don't have wrinkles. Fun fact, much like botulinum toxin was first used to treat lazy eye, there's another drug with a similarly interesting pedigree, we should say. Uh, Viagra was originally used to treat high blood pressure, and they realized that it wasn't that great at it, but a big side effect everyone was reporting that they got raging hard-ons. And, (laughs) well, the rest is history. Now, the reason you're not murdering someone when you inject them with Botox is for a couple things here. When you, in, uh, it depends on where you inject the person and how much you give them here, right? Typically, when you do a Botox injection, it's going to be in your face, and these are going to be in very, it's going to be thin. It's not injected too deep. It's injected into capillary beds. It's not injected into veins or arteries. So you're not going to get this systemic dis, uh, dissemination of the of the toxin here. And even if the doctor was grossly incompetent and and he ended up getting it into a vein or an artery, it's not enough to kill you. An average Botox session will inject up to what they call 200 units of botulinum toxin. One unit is the amount it would take to kill one Swiss Webster mouse, which is a common mouse used in research, and that weighs about 35 grams. If you trust my math here, that means if you had a 150-pound adult, they would only get about one three hundredth of the lethal lethal dose uh, in order to kill them. If I do a math from a completely other way, str- strictly by uh, by looking at the, the lethal dose uh, of, of of or the LD50 of botulinum toxin, one like I said, uh, one, 20 units equals one nanogram of botulinum toxin. So you would need if you just do all the same math I did before, you're still about one one hundredth the lethal dose for a doctor injecting a whole bunch into your face here. So not much to be worried about. To sum up, though. Uh, so what's really cool about Botox is that it's all around us, in my opinion. You know, it's in the food we eat, it's in the soil we walk in and touch, and yet we're still all okay. I'm certainly not trying to fear monger in this episode. The only real reason you'd ever need to be worried about botulinum toxin is because you canned your own food and you didn't do it properly, or if some power-hungry a-hole who leads a country decides it's a good idea to drop a bomb with it over your over your town or country maybe that's how deadly it is so not a lot you need to be worried about 
You also may have noticed that there's a theme kind of evolving here with a lot of the toxins we've mentioned on, on, on the various podcasts here. And that's that they typically work on your neurons and or your muscles. After all, this is a very effective way to kill you. You know, uh, if you can't breathe, if you can't, if your heart doesn't work, you're going to die very quickly. If your brain isn't sending uh, electrical signals to keep itself going, you're going to die very quickly. But fret not, there are plenty of other ways toxins and poisons can kill you, kill you, like shutting down your liver, breaking up your DNA, yada, yada, yada. And we're going to get to all those down the road. So with that, I'm going to put a bow on this episode. I'm going to thank you for listening. Please, please, please rate us on iTunes. It really helps us with uh, uh, people discover us because the more we get rated, the more comments people leave, the more likely we're going to be higher up on the list for people to look at. And there are a lot of science podcasts. It's very hard to, uh, to, to get noticed here. I could care less about your money. I want to get paid in your accolades and by you shamelessly telling your friends how great the show is. And we'll go from there. Lastly, if you have an idea for a show that I haven't thought of, please email us, info at thepoisoncast.com. We've already gotten tons of suggestions. I'm incorporating a lot of them. So thank you very much. With that, I think we'll end tier one. If you've gotten your fill of sciencey goodness, this is your time to bow out. I thank you for listening. If you are a molecular biology nerd, even if you're not, there's actually some really cool stuff in the initial part of tier two if you if you want to hear a little bit more but we're about to turn this podcast up to 11 so buckle in let's do this tier two okay so c botulinum exists as eight antigenically distinguishable exotoxins or stereotypes uh a through f a being the most toxic followed by b and f and uh, I should say a stereotype, these are distinct variations within species of bacteria or virus. Uh, you may commonly hear too, uh, like if in a non-bacteria or a virus, you'll hear um, isoform, but a, a serotype is the best way to describe it here. So there are small variations in the toxin that can change the KD, the binding coefficient, uh, to their target protein. But regardless of whatever uh, exotoxin variation you're looking at here, there's a high degree of homology between the different subtypes here. I'd also mention tetanus. Um, The tetanus toxin has a 30 to 40% homology between uh, between type A and itself. So so a very, very similar protein acts in a very similar manner. I don't know if we'll cover it later on on a different show. Seems a little too similar to do that, but but I'll see if I dig into it. So um, so I just said that type A is the most toxic and it's what's used in Botox because they want to use as little as possible. That was until 2013 when botulinum toxin type H was discovered and is now considered the deadliest toxin um uh, I should say the deadliest uh, uh, serotype of this, and it was discovered in the feces of a child suffering from botulinum when they actually did a uh, when they did a, a culture of it, and, and then they um, they they sequenced it. This, if this is accurate, if it proves to be that this is really how toxic it is, two nanograms by injection and thirteen by nanograms by inhalation will kill you. This isn't just a little bit more toxic than type A, which was previously the most toxic poison on planet earth it is 500 times more toxic than type a and the reason i chose not to include this in the main body the tier one of this is because there's only one paper on this and um and i just don't think there's enough science out there to suss out it is the most toxic but just how much it is so i went with some standard science there but um in any case if you want to compare it to what we did say in tier one one grain of salt of botulinum toxin type h one, if the equivalent size of one grain of salt could kill 50,000 people by injection. 
That is just, it's an unbelievable number that's hard to wrap your head around. You can take an entire football stadium and kill that entire football stadium with one grain of salt size of botulinum type H. It's nuts. Um, and it's funny, as someone pointed out, the gene sequence has not been made, made available uh, to the public because of its extreme toxicity. This is a quote from the editors of the Journal of Infectious Disease where it was published, and they wrote, because of... Uh, no, because no antitoxins as of yet have been developed to counteract the novel C. botulinum toxin, which is type H, uh, the authors have detailed consultations with representatives from numerous appropriate U.S. government agencies, i.e. Uh, the military, and they've agreed not to release it until, a, um, until an antitoxin has been developed, which is probably just going to be an antibody that can be injected into people. But that's some really, really nasty stuff here. Regardless of the isoform, all botulinum neurotoxins are zinc-dependent, and they are produced as a relatively intact single polypeptide chain with a molecular mass of about 150 kilodalton. Um, although they are part of a, initially part of a 900 kD complex that disassociates at physiological pH, then you have that 150 kilodalton subcomplex. The polypeptide chain uh, that is part of the 150 kilodalton complex consists of a heavy chain and a light chain that are roughly 100 kD and 50 kD respectively, right? And they're linked together by a disulfide bond. Uh, if you remember with disulfide bonds, it's just when you have two cysteines, they can fuse together and um, and it, you have the, the, the SH from each cysteine will basically lose the H through through reduction and then you'll get this, uh, you'll get you'll get a bond a double S bond, which is the disulfide bond, uh, and it helps lead to a more stable tertiary structure. So anyway, the botulinum toxin uh, uh, complex is also associated with very various other non-toxic proteins and blah, blah, blah. None of that really matters that much. So you have the heavy chain and you have the light chain. Botulinum toxins, they act at four different sites in the body, which we'd mentioned in the first part, and this is something that will make more sense if you're still listening. You have the neuromuscular junction, which we've talked about ad nauseum, the autonomic, uh, autonomic ganglia, the post-ganglionic parasympathetic nerve endings, and the post-ganglionic sympathetic um, nerve endings that specifically release acetylcholine. So, you know, in your autonomic nervous system, when you're when the nerve leaves the spine and it's heading to whatever it wants to control, whether it be the you know the 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 size of your pupil if it's light or dark, or your heart or or your diaphragm, there is a break in that neuron before it heads to whatever its target, you know, is, whether it be the eye or the diaphragm or whatever it happens to be. Um, that is controlled by acetylcholine. So the, the, the acetylcholine is released between those two to, to propagate the signal, and it's also released at the neuromuncular junction, and they are all fair game when it comes to botulinum toxin. The C, oh, someone told me not to do that. I, uh, I just caught myself doing it for the first time. I see what you're saying. Okay. The C uh, terminal region of the heavy chain of the toxin binds selectively and irreversibly, that's a key here, irreversibly to high affinity receptors at the presynaptic surface on these cholinergic neurons. Now, what happens is, is so you have this, this, this heavy chain and this light chain, they're together and they're not, they're, they're floating around looking for a target, which is their neuron, their cholinergic neuron. The end terminal of the H chain binds to and translocates the L chain across the membrane uh, so that it can be taken up into the cell by, uh, by endocytosis. And what happens is so that, so that your heavy chain binds, it will pull the L chain through the membrane of the neuron, and then the disulfide bond will be snipped, and then that L chain is free to go about through the cytoplasm of the neuron and find its, uh, its targets down at the bottom, which we're going to talk about which those targets are. One of the, the so these light chain, finds its way to the terminal of the neuron, 
binds to several different proteins. Uh, depending on the isoform of bot botulinum toxin, it will bind to different sections of and different types of these proteins. But uh, they're essentially uh, synaptobrevin, synaptotaxin, and SNAP25. If you don't know what these are, let me explain. In order for the vesicle containing, in this case, acetylcholine, to be exocytosed excuse me, into the synaptic cleft, the vesicle must bind to and fuse to the end of the nerve terminal so it can be released uh, into that postsynaptic cleft. This takes some energy as well as some calcium here. And it's the influx of calcium that, causes, that is caused by the initial action potential that primes the whole system so that the vesicle uh, can uh, so the vesicle can be released and uh, the calcium binds to synaptotagman which is a protein found on the membrane of the vesicle here right that's not quite where we come into play it with botulinum toxin once this has been initiated by calcium the snare complex can be formed the snare complex is when synaptobrevin not synaptotagman um, when synaptobrevin on the membrane of the vesicle so you have your vesicle you have synaptobrevin on the surface of that vesicle uh, it will bind to SNAP25 and syntaxin, which are actually on the neuron surface just prior to that postsynaptic cleft here. This happens very quickly in this complex, allows it to overcome the activation energy of the membrane cell fusion uh, to the wall, and then the acetylcholine can be released here. Botulinum toxin binds to one of these three proteins. It doesn't have to bind to any of them, but it, depending on the, the isoform, it can bind to one of those three. It will bind to that, and there's no fusion, you know, and the signal is not passed along uh, to the following uh, neuron in the autonomic system or to the to the neuromuscular junction and this whole process just takes nanoseconds so there's actually some really cool new technology coming online that allows us to visualize this at nanosecond resolution and it, it, i can't wait till i dial in we actually have some good videos here but i should mention that on the website uh thepoisoncast.com, if you go to this episode, you will find a really good graphic that sums up exactly what I just said, probably much more clearly, because when you see a picture, it's, it's much more clear here. Okay, so shifting gears just a bit. Did you know, you probably don't, but you might know, that an estimated 5 to 15% of patients injected with Botox develop secondary non-responsiveness. So how could this be? How could the Botox not be acting it. It is the most deadly poison on the planet after all. Well, the answer is, of course, antibodies. Botulinum toxin is a form protein that you inject into your body, and you can bet that your body is going to recognize this as foreign and try to fight it. If your body is able to foster an immune response prior to the Botox entering the neuron, it may have much less of an effect on the body, and you also might get inflammation and all kinds of other stuff as your body tries to fight it. Bad stuff. It's not something you want. This is especially true if you've already had Botox injections in the past. You've essentially inoculated yourself <laughs> um, the first time you were exposed. I guess it would be inoculated if it was live, so if you get botulism poisoning, you'd be inoculated. Otherwise, you'd have a vaccine. But So you've produced an immune response one way or another. The next time you're injected, all of those memory B cells jump into action and they produce tons of antibodies to take down the toxin so there's a higher likelihood that it's not going to to affect you and if it is going to affect you um, outside of we'll say an injection if you let's say you have botulism poisoning from eating bad canned food or something a lot of the symptoms are based on autonomic symptoms so you're going to get this this what they call the flaccid paralysis which is which is you 
slowly losing the ability to move and stuff, but you, that comes along with other autonomic symptoms, which are which are your pupils will remain dilated, you'll get bl blurred vision, you could get a, a bradycardia, which is your heartbeat beating too slow, hypotension, which is too low blood pressure, urinary retention, gastrointestinal distress. These are all classic symptoms of not autonomic disorders here. Uh, a little bit more about Botox. So if you get Botox, if you're just curious, if you were actually a doctor and you received it, actually, it comes in a lyophilized form of botulinum type A, as I said. Lyophilized means they just removed all the water. So the protein is still there, and it's kind of like a, a little... Uh, a little dried snot chunk is kind of what it looks like, and then you'll you'll add a, a, a solution to it, which probably just has some physiological pH stuff in it, and you 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 just put that in, you put it in, and it will it will resuspend everything. But um, and they do it by there's a specific form of C botulinum called the Hall strain, and this is very easy to grow, and it's very easy to identify and get the type A botulinum toxin out of, and that's how they grow it. Uh, it was purified through a series of acid precipitations, and then they crystallize it and they form this this uh, this lyophilized final form here. So a single vial of botulinum toxin or Botox, which of course if you haven't put it together yet, Botox is botulinum toxin. They just mush the two together so it doesn't sound quite as dangerous a uh, hundred unit vial has 4.8 nanograms of the toxin as we mentioned in the first part this is well below the ld50 except of course if this was type h that would be enough to kill two growing adults i have a feeling that the botox people there are a lot of different types of botoxes they have different names i don't have them all in front of me but they just use different isoforms here i i would bet my bottom dollar at some point when the when the gene sequence is released someone's going to some pharmaceutical company is going to make a new super botox that contains one one hundredth of what the toxin that the original botox does not only do you have to use less of it which is if you have a business like a pharmaceutical company that's a good thing but anytime you can ingest less talk less toxin into a person it's generally considered a good thing so this will probably happen within i don't know the next decade it takes a while for these things to get sussed out but um so where was I? Botox, all this fun stuff. It, you know, a side note, it's interesting that the KD for botulinum toxin type A is only 30.8 nanomolar. We've had like rice and it was, I think it was like five nanomolar or something, way more, uh, way stronger binding. It has a much uh, lower KD. The reason that's not that big of a deal and the reason why it's still so potent at such low doses is because it is trapped in that nerve terminal. It doesn't have a lot of places to go. So even if it's dissociating from its target protein, like SNAP25 or SNAPDetaxin, whatever it is, it's going to bind back to it relatively quickly because it's got nowhere to go. So, um, oh, last thing. I guess we'll, we're getting closer. Oh, geez, I'm probably going over on time. So uh, last thing I just want to say, and it's kind of a non sequitur, but uh, it does not cross the blood-brain barrier. There is cholinergic signaling in the brain itself. It's limited, but it does exist there, but it's not a problem because it doesn't cross the, the, the blood-brain barrier. At some point in the future, if you want to know what the blood-brain barrier is, actually pretty cool. It's not an actual, like, wall that all the, the blood has to go through. It has to do with some accessory neurons uh, called astrocytes, but... Different time, different podcast. Um, that was a very weird way to end it, but we're just going to end it there. I probably lost most people. So uh, if you're still listening, congratulations. And don't forget to send us recommendations for new shows, info at thepoisongas.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at PoisonCast. And please, I know I say it so much, but it really would mean a lot. Please rate us on iTunes so we can get uh, more exposure. And that would mean a lot to me. All right, guys. So goodbye. Goodbye.